The incredible truth of Christmas is that the creator of the universe didn't choose to cheer us on in our human race with pain and death from the sidelines of his heavenly palace. He came able to feel the aching muscles and the struggle to keep the oxygen flowing and the legs moving. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurzen, as we complete our journey to Christmas from the Gospel of John for some incredible news. My youngest son, Josh, several years ago decided he was going to run a marathon. He actually was meeting with some friends, and they were talking, and one of the friends boasted about how they could run the marathon. So Josh said, man, I could do much better than you. They talked a little bit more, and one of his friends said, hey, put your legs where your mouth is. And so for the next several weeks, he got up early in the morning, and, man, they stretched their time. They stretched their distances. I mean, they were working like crazy. About two months, I hear Josh saying, man, I'm getting ready for this marathon. And finally, the night before the marathon, it was actually on a Sunday morning, so the elders were gracious to let Mary and myself go down to Austin, and somebody else spoke that Sunday, and we were there in Austin. Man, Josh tanked down the carbs on Saturday night with all of his buddies, and we were there. Man, there were thousands of spectators. I mean, you've all seen the thing in Dallas. Austin was just like that. Some of you that have run in marathons, and there's thousands of spectators. There's actually hundreds of runners in the streets, and they're all there. The runners that are going to pace them all have their signs up. There's the 235 and the, the 3 hour racers and the 3.30 racers and the racers like me, the three or four day racers. But Josh was in his particular group. And in the beginning of the race, we could see him. Man, we could see him running going, come on, Josh, you can do this. And you all have spotters along the way. So, you know, with cell phones and everything, you're calling. They're doing all right and everything. But we actually didn't see Josh for more than a couple hours, two and a half hours. Didn't see him at all. And suddenly we saw, we got the word, hey, he's coming in. His pace, and he's actually running ahead of his friend that said he was going to beat him. Josh is competitive quietly, deep in his soul. But I watched him in the last part of the marathon. I even got, you know, up farther in the street, and I'm cheering him on. Man, I could see those muscles. They're shaking, and and I could feel the oxygen, trying to get oxygen into their lungs. And I could imagine, because when I run, like, 20 feet, I start feeling that. And Josh, I can just feel it. But you know what I couldn't do? I could say, I could say, man, Josh, come on, you can do this. Come on, you can go for it. But you know what? I have no idea what it's like to run a marathon. And you know what Christmas is about? Christmas is about Jesus not cheering us from the sidelines of eternity, but Jesus actually taking legs that could have muscles that would ache like crazy when you try to run 26.2 miles. Jesus could have lungs that would gasp for air, that about 23 miles in, you you think, man, I just can't go any farther. Every muscle in my body is filled with acid, and and I just can't, not LSD, but, you know, from your body. You know what I'm talking about, okay? Got to keep you guys straight, okay? Jesus actually knew what it was to have aching muscles, gasping for breath, being totally out of breath, and not feeling you can finish the race. And unlike so many of your friends, for example, all of you that get this Christmas time, we're all at different places in this race called life. And what the incredible gift of Christmas is, is we've been learning that God himself entered the race, that he ran this human race, and he doesn't cheer us from the sidelines. 
He actually runs with us. Now, I want you to turn to John chapter 1 because we've been studying about one of the early first century Christmas carols. And unlike our Christmas carols like Silent Night, Holy Night, All This Come, All This Night, we've been studying one of the earliest Christmas carols. And it started out, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Christmas story, as we've taken this journey to Christmas, we found out when we started the Advent season that the Christmas story doesn't start at Bethlehem. It doesn't even start when Mary conceived. Man, it starts before creation, in eternity. We learned that the Logos, that the ultimate design, the ultimate word, the ultimate language, actually the second person of the Trinity was living with his father in eternity past. So what we've been learning is that the one that we're celebrating his birthday today, he is before creation. In the beginning was the word, and the word was face-to-face with God. He corresponded with God. He was in eternal fellowship with God. But he himself had all of those divine characteristics. What it's saying is, if you guys would go to UT and study philosophy, you're going to learn about the great mind. If you're a biologist, you still might believe that there's no eternal being, there's no eternal intelligence. But most chemists and most physicists today say, man, there's got to be someone that created this incredible genetic code. Man, it's a language. I've told you about Anthony Flew, the leading atheist I read all of my life. And he always was no God. There isn't any God. Until they did the human genome. And suddenly I get this news that Anthony said the philosopher, there's got to be an ultimate reason. There's got to be an ultimate programmer. Because the genetic code is a language. And languages, it's impossible for them just to come by probabilities. So most of my physics buddies, most of my chemistry buddies, they have an idea that there's some great ultimate mind out there. And that's what John said. The Logos in Greek thinking was that ultimate, ultimate reason. And we learned, but he was more than that. He was not just a mind in the sky. He wasn't just Dr. Spock in the sky, but he was someone that had emotions and he had a will and he was living and he was in a community of love with his father. In the beginning was the word and the word was God. Then it says at creation, he was present. So you say, well, Dave, what was there before the Big Bang? Jesus was. What was the cause of the Big Bang? What you want to say to your friend is, how did the Big Bang happen? You know, where did energy and mass come from? Where did light come from? Which is all energy is. Light is just one little part of the spectrum called energy. One particular wavelength. And so you say, well, where in the world did, did, who turned on the lights in this place? We learned in the first, early first century Christmas hymn. All things were made by him who was not anything that was made that was made. A big question in biology, where did life come from? In him was life. So where does life come from? It doesn't spontaneously generate out of inanimate matter. It generates because of the second person of the Trinity. He possessed, just like his father and just like the spirit, they possess eternal life. Life that never ends. They are an eternal, ever-increasing, powerful life source. And Jesus said, let there be light, and let there be life, and there was. Then we learned that all through the Old Testament, he was, he was working, and he was revealing himself. And we have this weird enigma in the Old Testament that says that no one had ever seen God. 
And so Moses in Exodus chapter 24 is the law was given and, and the great Shekinah glory comes down. And then later on in Exodus 34, Moses says, man, I want to see you, God. And God says, no, you can't see me. You'll die, Moses, if you see me. But I'll let you just see a little bit of the back part of my glory. So he hides Moses in a rock and he lets Moses experience just a little glimpse of his glory. And that just gives Moses an incredible revelation of the glory of God. And yet we'll have in the Old Testament. Abraham eats with God. Like when God wants to talk things over with him about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and about saving his nephew Lot, Abraham has a normal meal with the great I am. It's crazy. No one can ever see him. And yet in the Old Testament, we have these manifestations where the great I am eats with his patriarchs and warns them about the destruction of cities. We have these weird stories like in Daniel and the lion's den where you have three Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and the Babylonians look in and say, man, it looks like one of the sons of the gods is in there because the Babylonians had this idea of these great supernatural beings. Just like all of you kids during the Christmas holidays, there's all kinds of movies about these great supernatural divine beings that might be out there. And some of the greatest kids films are all about these battles that are beyond this world. I want you to know that the idea for all that comes from the reality that there is this great son of man that could live in fire, that's not destroyed by fire. And he's so powerful, he could keep Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the midst of an incredibly hot furnace. You can come out and not even a hair on their head is singed. Because the second person, the Trinity, showed up in the Old Testament. And you could see him. But what this hymn is telling us that is that as we come to the end of the Christmas carol that we're studying today, we come to a very powerful verse, which is the climax. If you turn to John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh. See that? Everybody got it? John 1, 14. At the climax of this psalm that started in eternity of this hymn, Christmas carol, started in before creation, creation, Old Testament revelation, culminated the last time we were together, we talked about John the Baptist and how he witnessed to Jesus and about how he this word was rejected. And now we drive home the conclusion. The word became flesh and he came to live among us. See that? There's very prayerful words in that. It says, then the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us is the way that the, the NIV translated. it. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only or the most beloved of God who came from the father and is full of grace and truth. The first thing I want you to see in this verse is an incredible reality is that in the word. God is revealed. That's what it's telling. you. See, the big question is. There's this invisible ultimate. Everybody that thinks realizes there's got to be some supernatural reason, some supernatural power. There's got to be someone that lives in a world that's beyond anything we could ever imagine, a dimension we could never imagine. But this is the incredible story of Christmas. It's saying that the Logos, the Word, the Revealer, the Plan, the One that brought creation into being, what it's saying is He became like us. The word flesh, like sometimes the New Testament uses the word flesh to be bad. And what it, in fact, we can even translate it sometimes sin nature. Paul likes to use the word flesh to equal all those temptations that we wrestle with. 
So he'll say that you can't walk according to the flesh. You can't walk according to your sinful passions, but you need to walk according to the Holy Spirit. But John uses the idea in this hymn in a different way. He uses the flesh, not of sinful flesh, but of weak flesh, of vulnerability, of tiredness. So as you study the book of John, and maybe I'll whet your appetite to read it as you begin this next year, but as you go through the book of John, you've got this incredible divine God who's become flesh so that when he goes in John chapter 4 and sits down by a well in the afternoon, it says that he's tired out. How many of you have ever gotten tired out? Any of you moms tired out already? If any of you dads, like when you watch Chevy Chase's Christmas thing, he has to tank down Jack Daniels because he gets tired. He's so stretched out. Don't tank Jack Daniels. Your Savior gets tired with you. That's what this verse is saying. Your Savior knows all the pressure. Your Savior became a human being. What it's really saying is for that this Logos became flesh. He got tired. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He was fearful at times. One of the things that we can understand is as we worship Jesus today as this precious gift, John wants you to know that this great eternal being didn't come even as a super marathon runner. That's what, the way a lot of you think about Jesus. You know, you think Jesus joins the race and he takes off like the Azteca club that I ran with one time. You know, they, they could run the race four times before I completed it once. They were super runners. It was below zero and they had their shirts off and we would double back on their path. So they go running by us when I'm trying to get to the point that they've already been a half an hour before. And they would go, what big, no big deal. They're talking to each other. They're even pacing each other. I've worked with athletes like that. You say, hey, teach me how to do this jump shot. And man, you know, it's like Michael Jordan. And they're saying, you're an idiot. What's the matter with you? You just jump six feet in the air and you can do it easily. A lot of you think that's the way Jesus is. That's not what Jesus is. This morning, I want you to know the word became flesh. And he tabernacled among us. This is an incredible reality. Jesus didn't reveal himself as a semi-divine, supernatural, incredibly gifted marathon runner. He came like a normal marathon runner, like all of us. He ran his human race, not in his divine power, but like we have to run. You know what that means? He really understands. He doesn't cheer you from the sidelines today. And as you live this next year, he doesn't yell at you and say, come on, what's the matter with you? He said, I'll never leave you alone. That's what it means that he tabernacled among us. And Jesus not only came and lived 2,000 years ago as just a fleshly, human, weak, vulnerable human being, and yet still divine. But he said, I'm not going to leave you alone. So he sent his spirit. So every single tiredness and every single discouragement and every single fear and every single experience that I might face the next few days in the next year. Jesus is saying, I'm in you. I live inside of you. I'm going through this with you. Isn't that marvelous? Aren't you so thankful that you've got a Logos who became flesh and he lived among us? That idea about living among us, you'll like it. It's the idea he tabernacled among us. And John, he's Jewish. John is Jewish. So he's, and he's also Greek. He speaks Greek. So he, he mixes 
all of this incredible Greek philosophy. But he also is underneath this all. If, if I'm Jewish, I hear him say, this is Exodus. This is Exodus chapter 24. After the Lord gave the Ten Commandments and he instructed Moses about setting up the tabernacle. And Moses got all the skins and they dyed all the skins right. And they set up this beautiful little tabernacle, little tent in the center. And all the Israelites gathered around. They all pitched their tents around it. Suddenly it says that the glory, the kabod, in Hebrew, you can learn some Hebrew. Kabod means glory. It means heaviness. And it, what it means is you got to treat this with incredible importance. The Hebrews thought of glory, man. This is that, something that blows you away. It's heavy, heavy stuff. That's the way we use it in vernacular English. And they're saying that this great kabod of God, and all of you kids learn, if you're raised in Sunday school, about the glory, the thunder that showed at night on Mount Sinai and this pillar of fire that would glow at night. That's the kabod. That's the glory of God. And if you were an Israelite, if you were an Israelite, man, you, the, the, the wilderness generation would tell their kids, man, you wouldn't believe it at night. We would look out our flap of our tent and we'd see this incredible torch and it radiated. Man, it was like having lightning right there in the middle of your camp. Better than any Steven Spielberg story. That was the glory of God. It was, And in the Hebrew word, they call it the Shekinah glory as well. And Shekinah is the word in Hebrew, the same consonants that I use for tabernacle, I use for Shekinah. The same three consonants that form the word for the Shekinah is the same word that I would use to describe that tabernacle. And that's what John is wanting you to hear this morning. He's saying that the great Logos, just like in the Old Testament, the Father revealed his glory in this radiating pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day that guided them at Christmas in Bethlehem. It's incredible. That glory was a baby. And that blows me away. And as a philosopher, you say, that's crazy. That's the stupid thing I ever heard. Philosophers will never buy that. Man, mothers, slippery wombs. This is crazy. A vulnerable little baby? That How could that be glory? How could that be glory? We beheld... John's going to go on in this verse. He says, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the one and only Father who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You say, well, Dave, I know when they saw the glory. Man, it was at the transfiguration. That was one of the times... In fact, that was one of the times where the Lord took away... His mask in a way. He, he took away the veil that was upon him and he just let his disciples, Peter, James, and John, see glory. Like if you kids, the reason you need to follow Jesus all your life is man, he's going to dress you forever in the most incredible clothes, much better than the hoodies your parents gave you a few hours ago. Jesus is going to dress you. You girls want to have a beautiful apparel? You're going to be dressed in your new body and you're going to radiate. You're going to just explode with light. That's what happened at the transfiguration. They could barely stand it. It knocked them to their knees. But John, in his fourth gospel, he never mentions the transfiguration. 
Because John had a different idea of glory. You all understand, oh yeah, the glory of a great star. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the one that's lived with God forever and ever. Look at him radiating light up on the mountain. And Peter says, let's stay up on the mountain and we're going to build all these tabernacles. Same word, kind of a word. Set up little tents. Jesus said, no. In John's gospel, I know for sure it's true because no author would ever come up with this. In John's gospel, the glory is revealed through the weakness. Sure. Jesus can turn water to wine in John chapter 2. Sure, Jesus can make the blind man see in the heart of the gospel. Sure, Jesus, at the culmination in the sixth sign of the raising of Lazarus, sure, Jesus can raise his friend from the dead. But John wants you to see his glory, most of all, when he just lets himself be taken in the Garden of Gethsemane. He lets Caiaphas and all the leaders accuse him falsely. In fact, John says an incredible thing. He says, you're going to see his glory when the Son of Man is lifted up. Glory. When Jesus hangs on that cursed tree, John the Apostle is saying, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. You see, Dave, how do you know that that was the glory? Because John tells you the glory is not revealed just through omnipotent power. It's not just revealed because Jesus is like the supernatural, ultimate superhero. It says, no, Jesus is glorious as he hangs in total weakness and takes all of our sin upon himself. And he pours himself out. And in John's gospel, he shouts out, it is finished. All of the guilt, all the condemnation, all the punishment. If you're sitting there today and you don't feel free. If you think of, I've lied. I've been arrogant. I didn't even want to come to church today because I want, I'm focused more on my own stuff and I don't care about Jesus' stuff. Jesus knows all about that. That's your evil sin nature. That's why Jesus came, because there's a part of us that doesn't respond to divine things. We're part of a rebellious race. And yet John's gospel is telling us that, that Jesus revealed his glory when he hung on that cross. And he died for us. He said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he's going to draw all men to him. And then on the third day, Mary Magdalene is able to see him and say, my Lord and my God. Some of you still have the idea that this great savior that I'm saying, hey, he's God fleshed out. You still think he's just a prophet. Well, John reminds us what we learned the last time we're together. It says John testifies concerning him. John the Baptist cries out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me. Look at verse 15. This is he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. John the Baptist again is saying, don't follow me. I know I came first. I know I had the first movement. I know I'm older than Jesus. But in the first century, John the Baptist is crying out. I want you to know that this Logos who became Jesus that was born in Bethlehem, I know I'm older physically, but he existed before me. So John the Baptist is saying that what I've been teaching this morning about the second person of the Trinity that lived in eternity past, John the Baptist is saying, believe that. Don't ever think of Jesus just as a great prophet. He was a great prophet, but he was far more. 
And then John closes by saying this, for the law was given through Moses. The law was given through Moses, but grace, look at it, grace and truth were revealed through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, what we've been talking about. No one has ever seen the first person, the Trinity. No one's ever seen God the Father. He lives in unapproachable light. He's invisible. But God, this is the Logos. God, the one and only, who was at the Father's side, has revealed him to us this morning. God fleshed out, greater than a prophet. He is the revealer of grace, the one that causes grace to come upon us. Moses revealed the law. If you're from a Jewish background and you need to share with your Jewish friends, Moses revealed the Ten Commandments. He went up on the mountain and God gave us those ten words. And those are incredible words. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart. How many of you have ever loved the Lord your God with all your heart every second of your life? How many of you have ever not had a graven image? Have any of you ever worshipped false gods? Anybody here ever done that? Like I was a little boy. My dad used to make me keep the Sabbath. You know, in other words, he said, you can honor every day. But in our family, we're going to really honor the Sabbath. So he wouldn't even let me read the New York Daily News and find out the football scores. And I thought that was really bum. And I used to rebel against my dad. I can't believe we got to keep the Shabbat. we got to keep the Sabbath. I had a hard heart sometimes. I don't want to spend any time just with God. How many of you kids have just have not honored your parents? Any kids here ever disobeyed your parents? Okay. How many of you have ever said, I could kill you to your little brother or sister or to your guy you work with? Thou shalt not murder. How many of you guys have ever lusted after a, a woman, looked at her, and you lusted after her? Anybody ever done that? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Have any of you girls ever met with a counselor and they really understood you. Your husband's an idiot. He, he always tries to fix you. But you met a marvelous counselor that said, I understand you. I think you're so cool. And he kind of looked like Brad Pitt, so you lusted it. Any of you ladies ever done that? Let's do the last one. How many of you have ever coveted? Anybody ever gone in and your best friend just got a new Lexus, just like the ads that they've been pushing all, you know, or a brand new Cadillac, you know, this marvelous Cadillac or whatever it is. And the first thought you had is, man, why didn't my husband give me that? Or why didn't my wife give me that? That's coveting. How many of you, your first instantaneous thought is, praise God, this is awesome. I love it. I'm so thrilled that my sister or my best friend got a better gift than me. None of us do that. So you know what? The law of Moses just did an MRI on all of us. And we're all sick, aren't we? Without Jesus. The law came by Moses. Moses isn't a bad guy. I've got a lot of friends in our church that do MRIs. And I've often been with them. I love MRIs. But I've never met a person in all the world that was ever healed of cancers by MRIs. But I have by transplants. Bone transplants. We've seen incredible healing power from transplants. On this Christmas Day, I'm so thankful that the Logos, God, became a fully human being so he could hang on the cross of Calvary, so he could pour out his blood, so he could rise again from the dead, so he could give Dave Wartson and every one of my brothers and sisters, every one of my friends, a transplant. That he could give me a brand new life. He is full of grace, steadfast, covenant love. 
from a Jewish standpoint. And he's filled with reliability. From a Greek standpoint, they would hear these words, full of grace. He is full of just giving totally undeserved gifts. And you can count on the fact that everything that I told you this morning from John 1 is reliable. It's real. It's true. Amen.